guys having a great evening? Are you excited uh, for tonight, Q&A time? I'm excited. Hey, I'm excited. I had uh, Chef Todd's pinto beans, so I'm really excited. <laughs> <laughs> they were great. Okay, good, good. <laughs> Dinner was good. Well, uh, man, there were a lot there were a lot of questions. You guys weren't kidding around this time. Yeah, they, they submitted That's a right. lot of questions yeah. and really, really great questions. There were so excellent questions. I am excited I to dive into this. I yeah. know you are as well. There were more than we're going to get to. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But I don't know which ones you're going to pick. Right, so. exactly. So yeah. that's the luck of the draw. Yeah. But I think, we'll, I think we'll start fairly simple tonight. Okay. I like the first one that, that was asked or that was submitted. If the biblical Sabbath is Saturday, why do we worship on Sunday? A lot of people ask that question. I've heard that many times over my years in ministry. Mm -hmm. They want to know, man, if the biblical Sabbath is Saturday, why do we worship on Sunday? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, the Sabbath under the Jewish law is, uh, the observance of the Sabbath is something mandated in the law. And the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. It's what the word Sabbath means. It means the seventh day. And that happens to be the day that we call Saturday. Who speaks Spanish in here? Anybody speak Spanish? Saturday in Spanish Hola. is sabado. Sabado. That's sabado. Right. Seventh day. So yep. it comes from Sabbath. And so they, they honored the Sabbath. But... Um, uh, the scripture does not require the church to, to gather on the Sabbath. So that Sunday, there's a misconception about Sunday, that Sunday is somehow the Christian Sabbath. We have no Sabbath other than Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. The last God-sanctioned Sabbath day was the Sabbath that Jesus' body was in that tomb. And then he rose from the grave. And Christ, Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 4, says that Christ is our rest. That is the quintessential chapter on the fact that he is our Sabbath. We, are, we rest in him, church. But we do gather on traditionally on Sunday. Now, not every church gathers on Sunday, but historically they did. They did gather on Sunday. Do you know why? First day of the week. It, that was the day he rose from the grave. Yeah. It was on the first day of the week. In fact, uh, in, in Scripture, we, we see that referred to, I think it's Revelation 10. You got John on the Isle of Patmos, and he starts off that book. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So they didn't call it the Sabbath. They called it the Lord's day because the first day of the week was the day that he rose from the grave. Acts 20, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day. So they were gathered on the first day. So you, you know that in the early church, they did gather on the first day, which was Sunday, not Monday, Sunday. First uh, Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. So offering is directed by Paul on the first day because it's assumed that's when they're going to be gathering. Now, are we mandated to meet on the first day? No. No, they just did. That was the day that they chose to gather because it made, it made sense. If you were in the first church, that would probably make sense as the day when you would gather. Mm -hmm. but, but some churches don't. We, I came from a church in California. We had services on Saturday night. We had them on Sunday morning. The people that came on Saturday night did not come on Sunday morning. Saturday was their day when they went to church. Mm -hmm. And so whatever church you go to, whenever they gather, uh, and, and I would say that it should be where they, this is an, an, an assigned time when we gather together, whatever day that is that your church gathers on, that day ought to be special to you. Mm -hmm. That ought to be the day that you set aside. Because the Sabbath was not a gathering day anyway. The Sabbath was a day for rest. Right. We gather. 
we're not coming to rest. Right. We rest in Christ every day. Mm-hmm. We're coming to study the Word, to have community and fellowship with one another, to do what we just did, which is to worship Him. Yep. And it, it's, it's a gathering. Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And so that, that's a command. Mm-hmm. But the day is never commanded. And so I hope that answers that question. Yeah, but, yeah. sounds like it to me. Yeah. You know, uh, I, think, uh, I think of the fact that, you know, the, people call it the Lord's Day, but also uh, to the effect of, man, it's Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. A lot of people say Easter Sunday is only at Easter time, but we celebrate, celebrate the, resurrection the Resurrection every, week. every Sunday That's right. for us. That's you why know, it's the as, Lord's Day. Sure. Exactly. So yeah. very good, very good. All right, uh, we're going back to uh, a little bit of uh, the biblical view of marriage. Um, so this question was, you know, we, we had a series where you talked about divorce and remarriage, which really was very well uh, viewed many times over that, that uh, sermon uh, when we talked about hot uh, topics or hot potatoes uh, in the service. That was the one I thought I would need a, a plexiglass shield. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so the, this question says, does the Bible view a marriage as, as one that's recognized by the government or mm-hmm. just upholding the covenant and guidelines stated by the Bible for actions, behaviors as a married couple. So they're asking about the biblical view of marriage. So are we supposed to view marriage as something that is classified as such by the government legally? Right. right. Uh, So we know who instituted marriage. Was it the government? No. No, marriage predates the government as an institution. In fact, the very first institution that God created was the institution of marriage. Mm. He created Adam. He created Eve. Right? So marriage came before government. Government came. We've, we've been studying this in, in Genesis. Mm. And there are m- countless couples, ancient couples, that were married in the sight of God before any license was ever granted by any government denoting marriage, a marital status. Mm. And so, no, we don't, we don't look at it as a legal thing. However, that does not mean that it is pointless to seek a legal status. In fact, it is right and appropriate, and I believe that for Christian couples that you should obtain a legal status if you desire to be married because God has instituted authorities over us. Uh, we are to submit to the governing authorities. And so, uh, you know, we, we do that. We know that we're married in the sight of God because he instituted it. He defined it. Uh, we gather as Christians uh, under the authority of a local New Testament church and, uh, and we, we, we get married. We, it's a covenant relationship. We, that's our view of marriage. However, we are citizens in a country where there are laws. Law and order is a good thing, and God has empowered that. He has authorized that. And so we function under the, the, uh, the, the legal standing that, that our government recognizes. And that's, you know, there are blessings and benefits to that. There are tax breaks associated yeah, with that. Right. So it's, it's, it, that goes to maybe stewardship as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not a wrong thing to seek that. It's just that we know who defines it. Right. Which is to say, there are some marriages that the government recognizes that God does not. Right. That's exactly right. And so, but it does, it does start with God. I think that you have to understand it starts with God, yep. but a legal status is a good and, and noble thing to, to pursue. Okay. I, yeah. think that, I think that covers that question. The next one I hear and I've thought about and um, I've heard asked a lot as well, and um, it's this, is cremation biblically wrong and then a follow-up question off of that is how does that work with our resurrection uh one day when they resurrected 
You know, body. I think I saw like four questions related to cremation. Yeah. I don't lot. know why that is, but it was interesting. I was like, oh, creation. It's it, cheaper crema- these days. Cremation is on. Oh, is it cheaper these days? <laughs> yeah, I've looked into it. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should get in that business, huh? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, I remember hearing people talk about cremation. I heard people say, you know, it's wrong for a Christian to be cremated. And I would ask why, you know, because I asked why a lot mm-hmm. growing up. And I was told, well, it's because the Bible forbids it. And then I started reading the Bible, and I found out it's never forbidden. Cremation is not something that is forbidden. There is a reason that people have arrived at that conclusion. is because many pagan cultures practiced things that smacked of cremation. For example, the ancient pagan cultures often would sacrifice you know, living people. They would offer living sacrifices, and they would burn people alive. They would do that. Um, in making offerings to Molech or Marduk or whoever it may be. And so that sort of a practice is considered a pagan practice. So it kind of had that stigma. Uh, you know, if you look at cultures like the Vikings and such, they, that was a pagan culture in the Middle Ages. Whenever someone would die, they would put them on a pyre and they would light it ablaze or they'd put them on a boat and they'd send them out in the water, mm-hmm. you know, just, just mm-hmm. blazing away. And it was kind of, they're, they're releasing them into Valhalla or, or whatever it may be. Those are wrong practices, but it's not the method that makes it wrong. It's the motivation that makes it wrong. So the motivation was pagan in nature and therefore theologically incorrect. Cremation in and of itself is never forbidden. The law doesn't speak to it at all. And so if that's something that you, maybe you've got loved ones that they've been cremated, there's, there's nothing wrong with, with the method, okay? Now, if it's, it's some sort of a sacrifice whereby you are reuniting someone with nature the bible doesn't sanction that right, right that's that's right. that's kind of out of whack yeah. but but cremation is just a it's just another form of burial now to the resurrection thing some people say well if you're cremated you know we're supposed to be raised one day how does god raise our body if mm-hmm. we're just ashes yeah. I assure you that is not a concern for god <laughs> he's not worried about that He's got, I, and please understand, Adam, I was gonna say, Moses, yeah. De, any New Testament, they are all dust by Ashes, now. Yeah, yeah. They are not, you know, still juicy or any of that. Well, and we were formed also out we're of the dust. We're formed dust to dust, man yeah, shall return. Yeah. So God can We're re- just helping the process, speed yeah, it up a little, that's a little right, bit. That's right. God is not uh, daunted by anything. He can recombine, reconstitute, reanimate. Yeah. He's God. Yeah. And so you're, you're going to rise with him. No matter what. I was walking. So. This is a funny thing because you said releasing it back to nature. But my, my father-in-law was in town and we went to Cedar Rock Park. And we were walking along where the, going to the water fountain. And we got closer and we started listening and there was this music playing. And the next thing we know, we realized, man, we're at a, we're at a funeral. Like this is a funeral that somebody's having at the water. And then the next thing we know, we see this package come out in this box. And all of a sudden these ashes start getting dumped in the in the water there. And we're I hope like, it wasn't a windy day. Well, I know, yeah. I'm like, you know, Aunt Margaret's floating down the river toward us, and we're like, man, I hope we, she's not coming this way. But we were like, man, that's crazy. She's floating toward us. Anyway, bad, bad it just made me think, when you said that, it made me think of, I don't know if her name was Margaret or, or if it was a she, but it was just awkward for us because we were like, we're caught here. You know, we were just going to enjoy nature. Thank you for uh, sharing that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you'd want to know that. So uh, uh, someone asked a question about a passage of Scripture, so I thought I would read that passage of Scripture. Okay. And then, uh, but I noticed, too, they only uh, 
listed part of that. So I'll just say oh. the part that they listed, but there were like two other passages that they didn't include that were really included in that scripture that was asked about. I think it was taken from Joel or something like that. But anyway, I'll just ask the question, what do you believe about Acts 2, 17 through 19? And it says this, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. That's where 19 ends, but it goes on to 20 and 21. But. Yeah, and I can, I can speak to that. Okay. All right, so that passage is from Acts. So that's Acts chapter 2. That's the birth of the church. Peter is preaching. Mm-hmm. So it's Pentecost. You've got all these Jews from other countries. They're in, in Jerusalem for the feast. And he's preaching. That particular passage, you said Joel. He is quoting from the prophet Joel there. Mm -hmm. Peter is. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason that this is being asked about, I would assume, because this is usually uh, what is being asked, is uh, he's talking about your sons and daughters should prophesy, your old men see visions, or your young men see visions, your old men dream dreams. The question that's probably at the heart of this is, how do you view this? Meaning, do you still believe that people prophesy, do you still believe that people dream dreams and have visions? In essence, are people, Pastor Scott, in your view, still receiving direct revelation? Because Peter seems to be saying that that's going to happen. But what I want to do is not fixate on that. I want to take it in context, and I want to recognize that it comes from the Old Testament, from the prophet Joel, Mm -hmm. and the context of Joel is, this is a kingdom prophecy. He's talking about the kingdom, the coming reign of the Messiah. But Peter goes on to quote Joel, and so you got to keep moving. So in verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so this passage, the context of it is this is the end times setting up the millennial reign of the Christ, of the Messiah, as he comes back to reign and rule in person on the earth. So these things are prophesied from the Old Testament to occur before that final kingdom age. Peter brings it up because he's trying to convey to them who that Messiah is. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, this Acts 2 passage is when they think the disciples and those who are filled with the Holy Spirit are drunk. They think they're crazy. At 9.30 in the morning. And, intoxicated. Yeah, and he's yeah. speaking in reference to that to explain that. That's true. Yeah. So he quotes from the prophet. Now, when you, when you see prophecy, when you read prophecy, you understand often there is a near fulfillment and there is a far fulfillment. And so there is a near and far fulfillment with this particular prophecy. Part of it is being fulfilled in that the Spirit is now operating in a new way. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people temporarily for for specific purposes, and then he would depart. Now, he is filling them. He's indwelling and filling them. And so they are speaking in an apostolic way. But that prophecy says he's going to pour his spirit out on all flesh. And so the question is, has that happened in Acts 2? Did everyone on planet Earth suddenly have the spirit at that very moment? No. No. Only a select few did, and God is using them to preach the gospel. 
And then the, the Spirit will fill or indwell whomever responds to the gospel. But there's a far fulfillment where his Spirit will be filled or will fall on all flesh. Mm -hmm. When will that be? Well, who's going to enter the kingdom? Only righteous people. And so those righteous people will uh, have the full Spirit fall upon them in the kingdom age. These other things that I've described, the moon turning to blood, the fire, the smoke, the vapor, all that, is that going on in Acts 2? It's not. Is it going to happen? Yes. When? To set up the kingdom at the end of the tribulation. You're going to see these things. These will be signs of the coming of the Christ when he comes back. And so Peter is giving them a taste because they're, they are Jews. They do know the prophet. And so he's giving credibility to, to the person of Christ whom he's about to share the gospel with these people. But he begins by establishing authority, quoting someone that they know, they respect, they revere the prophet Joel. And so there is a partial fulfillment to what he's saying. It's happening right there. But the full thing that's going to take place happens much later. So the, the, the heart of the question is, do you think that the, the visions and the prophesying and the dreams happen today? God is a supernatural God. He can reveal himself in a multitude of ways. I do not, however, see the full fulfillment of this prophecy as being a reality right here, right now. In other words, I don't think that uh, prophesying and hearing from the Lord is normative today. Does it happen? Can God speak to us? Yeah, I'm going to do a whole study on encountering the voice of God starting next week. And I, I encourage you to come to that. I'm very excited about it. But are we, are we receiving direct revelation and prophesying what we hear from the Lord directly today in an apostolic fashion? No. No. And so this is not normative for today, but one day that which we see as miraculous um, as miraculous will be the norm in the kingdom age. Mm -hmm. So I, I hope that makes sense, but that's, that's my perspective yeah, so, on that. But too. also, too, isn't it true, like, when we are foretelling the gospel, people are receiving that word. And so, in a sense, we are proclaiming the gospel as we, like, just like Peter was doing, he was oh, using this look. as an opportunity. He took every situation, yeah. which was awesome, yeah. you know, and I think that's, that's a lesson for all of us. No matter what situation we're in, you know, I, I had a heart, uh, thing that they put this thing on you. I don't know all the terminology for it, but you know, as I was sitting there talking to her, I just began discussing life, yeah. you know, and found out she had been through a difficult time in her life. Right. Well, it just was an, a, an incredible opportunity to lead into the gospel. And I think that's what we as followers of Christ should always look for opportunities yeah. to share our faith, just like Peter was doing in this situation, using that circumstance. Right to proclaim the gospel. So the foretelling of, man, this is what's to come is a part of that. But it, you're, what you're saying is in reference to, man, God just gave me a vision and I'm going to tell it. And That's it's, what different I'm from, about. it's different from what he's shown yeah. in the For, Foretelling is different from foretelling, isn't it? So you want to you wanna, you wanna reveal the word of God? Anytime you speak the truth of scripture, you're prophesying. Right. You are <clears throat> operating prophetically because God has said, and when we repeat what God has said, we are acting in a prophetic way. Okay? Yeah. Are we a direct receptacle for fresh, new, never-before-revealed information? No. Because no, it's already been given to yeah, us. Yeah, we're not apostles, we're not prophets, but we act prophetically when we speak forth what he has already said in his so word. So if we get a dream that, you know... You're not going to get anything that he hasn't said before. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. 
So we need to we need to we need to partner that up with the Word of God and say, how Always. does this fit in with the Word of God? What I'm receiving, and then the Word of God is the great authenticator. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like that authenticator app on your phone that you pull up and it says, "We need to make sure this is you." So <laughs> tap your name or tap your number and make sure it's you. That's what we do with the Word of God. We authenticate it back to our situation. Man, I'm good. I got sermon I got illustrations stuff, on the fly. I'm with telling you. The crazy thing is we didn't talk about any of these questions. He just sent them to me and he's like, here's the questions. Go whatever order you want. And then uh, it's a dangerous process. It, it is a dangerous process for me and him. But anyway, I think it was cool that he, I was reading the questions and going through them and I picked up when I went and read the passage about yeah. 2021, 20, you picked yeah. up on that as well. And we yeah. never talked about it anyway. We didn't. That's so, right. So, uh, Good so, to know you're reading your Bible, Billy. Yeah, I try every once in a while, you know. Um, so let's, let's, speaking of the Bible, there's a, that's a good segue. Uh, okay. Thanks for setting me up for that. Uh, about some passages, um, uh, translations, and then also some uh, people that say, like this one right here. How do I respond to a friend that says we should only read from the king? I've... We both went to Liberty University, so <laughs> we, we've been, you know, we, there, was a, there was a book we had to read called Which Version, you know, uh, in seminary uh, that talked about which version and which version of the Bible. So I love questions like this. How do I respond to a friend who says we should only read from the King James Version? Yeah, the King James Bible is the Bible I grew up with. Yep. I'm sure you did too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I looked. It took me 30 minutes to read one passage to get oh, it down. No. You know? <laughs> I love the King James. I really do. I grew up in the 80s. I was a kid in the 80s. I remember 1984, this new version came out called the NIV, the mm -hmm. New International Version. Sold like hotcakes. People loved it because it was in a more modern vernacular. Right. They could relate to it. They could understand it better. And a lot of people would call it the non-inspired version. The non-inspired <laughs> version, the new international perversion, I yeah. heard it all. So your traditionalists didn't like it. My, my mom and dad bought me a student Bible. Mm -hmm, same. Uh, did you get one of those? Yeah, yeah sure it was did. an NIV. I loved yeah. it. Yeah, I did too. Uh, but then I, then I heard from some people that were purists, and they're like the King James Version. Mm -hmm. And one day, somebody took my NIV, and they opened it to John chapter 5, and they showed me uh, it jumped from verse 3 to verse Five. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I didn't notice it. Where's verse four? And it was missing. And it really rattled me. Mm -hmm. And then they showed me some several other places where there were verses that were missing. I thought, well, why would the NIV omit these verses? And they're like, because the King James is God's chosen translation. And they were trying to tell me, this is the only Bible you should be reading, Scott. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they were making a pretty good case at the time. Right. But, you know, as you, as you begin to learn some things about Bible translations, here's what you understand. The, King, the people who embrace the King, and by the way, I got no problem with the King James Version. I grew up with that Bible. Mm -hmm. I think it's poetic. It's beautiful. For the most part, it's a highly, highly accurate translation. But isn't it true also that even the King James Version has had revisions from the 1611 original King James version that it was written in that we have today. Well, what you so here's what you got. Here's what you got going on. The people who who say it's King James only, their concern comes out of a distrust of the translation process of newer versions translations yeah, which of I the get Bible. That. I get that. And it goes to the philosophy of translation, which I totally respect that yep. concern. Yeah. 
but it also goes to the manuscript that is being used. Yeah. And there's a manuscript that the, the New Testament of the King James Version is based on, which is called the, the TR, the Textus Receptus. That's a Latin term. It means the received text. And it was the most uh, viable manuscript for the New Testament at the time. And so, but they call it the Textus Receptus because they believe that it was delivered divinely, this particular manuscript, for the translators. However, they also, the King James only viewpoint tends to not be limited to the manuscript. It tends to be uh, inclusive of the English translation as well. There's a real uh, reverence for the English translation. In fact, some, not all, but some of the people that are K KJV only believe that the English translation is inspired and infallible. And what I want to make sure you understand is that no translation of your Bible is inspired and infallible. The only thing that is inspired and infallible are the original Greek and Hebrew texts that the Bible was written in. They call them the original autographs. Now, we don't have those anymore. Those are long since dust. What, what, is, what has been passed on are handwritten copies of those, okay? Now, I have every reason to believe that they're accurate. But what I'm saying is no copy and no translation of a copy is inspired text. Only the original text is inspired in the original languages. All right? Mm -hmm. So the newer translations, what I've come to find out, for the most part, are based on manuscripts that are actually older than the manuscripts used for the King James Version. Now, why would that be preferable? You could probably guess. If it's older, that means it's closer chronologically mm -hmm. to the original text. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, there's not a lot of difference, but there are some differences. And the re But what I've discovered is the reason that, you know, for example, John 5, 4 is missing in, say, the NIV, the ESV, some of these other versions, is because in the older manuscripts that they used, it that verse that. does not appear, mm -hmm. which means it was added later, mm -hmm. you understand. And so what you were saying a moment ago with the King James Version is that you've got something else going on. So if, if they would allege that it's wrong to omit Scripture, which I would agree with, as long as that Scripture they're omitting was there in the first place, mm -hmm. it would be equally wrong to add to scripture right and there is i gotta be honest with you as much as i respect the king james version there is one passage which is in first john 5 7 if you've got a king james here's how first john 5 7 reads in your king james version it says for there are three that bear record in heaven the father the word or the logos and the holy ghost and these three are one now that's a true statement I, we would all agree with that. Scripturally, doctrinally, theologically, that is all true. There are three that give record. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one. So that's the doctrine of what? That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Is the Trinity a valid doctrine? I believe wholeheartedly that it is. I think you see it all throughout Scripture. Here's the problem. That verse was not in the original manuscript. It wasn't even in the original Texas Receptus. There were three revisions to the TR, as you pointed out. Mm -hmm. This was added on the third revision. Why was it added? To help God out. Mm. It was added because whoever was uh, the scribe had a, a theological understanding of the Trinity and thought, you know, it sure would be great if there was a single verse that summed up the Trinity. So he decided, hey, so they I'm going to do it. I'm going to put this in there, and it translated as I've just read it. 
but it wasn't in the original. It doesn't mean that the Trinity isn't a valid concept. It just means they, they plugged that verse in there. And so, uh, and so I, I don't put stock in the King James-only movement. Right. Uh, I would just tell my friend, listen, if I had a friend that said, the King James is the only version you can read. Listen, if you w- cease fellowship with someone based on uh, what translation of the Bible they read, that's a, that's a problem. Yeah. That's a, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, God doesn't want you to cancel somebody because they read a different translation than you. People often ask me, what's the best one? You know, I, I, would, do you a little, read? I, I would do a little research. for. The, I often say the one you'll read. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I got to be careful be, with yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, especially those ones that are right. gender neutral and all those. things Yeah, that have there's come some out. dicey yeah. ones out there now. Yeah. Didn't used to be that way, yeah. but you know, mo- most of your mainstream uh, translations. And I would make sure you talk about an actual translation, not just a, a paraphrase. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the King James, the New King James, the NIV. Uh, now, the the older NIV I like better. The eighty four. Yeah. The eleven mm-hmm. has some stuff, but it's not. You know, it's not heresy. Uh, the, the New American Standard, very accurate translation. Of course, I teach out of the ESV, so obviously I like that one. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, to each his own with regard to that. Yep. Just make sure it's a, it's a translation. Yep. Do your research and, uh, and make a judgment. But it, I want you to read it. I, want, I don't want you to be confused by it. Yeah. Some people read the King James, they're confused as a termite and a yo-yo. Right, you know, yeah. Uh, with all sure. the these and thous. But, by the way, there are some King James-only people that, it's, this is to show you it's not about the manuscript, it's about the, the translation. There are some King James-only people that think the new King James is heretical, but they use the same manuscript. To, to but they don't like from. it because it doesn't have the these and thous in it. Right. That makes it more holy when you have the these oh, and thous. Oh, you know, when you, when you pray, you, got, you definitely sound more holy. Yeah. Oh, Lord, <laughs> we cometh before a thief, oh, God. You know. Yeah, so. gotcha. So along that same lines, this person had uh, a, a second person asked, what are your thoughts on the Passion Translation. So, you yeah. know. I don't know if you've heard of the Passion Translation. It's gaining in popularity. It's very popular with some younger sets, some progressive churches. A lot of hyper-charismatic churches really, really like this. Um, it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. A translation is when they take the original languages, and there's usually a team of people and they decipher the original languages, and over years they spend time uh, translating that into a, a, a more updated vernacular in English uh, or some other language, and, and, and you come up with a translation. This is not a translation. This is a rewrite, okay? Uh, and it's not a team of people. It's one guy. It's a guy named Brian Simmons. He was a missionary and evangelist. Um, but what he's done, he's got some very dicey sources that he's working from. He believes the New Testament came out of the Aramaic, which is wrong. But he also has an agenda, and what he's doing is he's infused his own theological view into the translation. One thing you don't want with a Bible translation philosophy is somebody coming with an agenda, with a theological viewpoint, Mm -hmm. and they're operating from that. That's not the job. To interpret is not the job of the translator. Translating is the job of the translator. Interpretation is the job of the reader. The reader is to interpret the text using the context, who's speaking, who's being spoken to. But there's, a, there's a, a translation philosophy that tries to make it what you think it ought to be or how would it be said if it were written today or whatever. Well, this guy's even worse because he comes out of what's called the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, which means he believes that he's an apostle. Or he believes that people leading the church are apostles or prophets. And those are the offices of the church as opposed to pastors and elders. 
And so he's, he's bought into this, you know, uh, certain people are, are receptacles for direct revelation from God, and he infuses that into the translation, and, and it emphasizes very emotional things. So he comes from a very hyper-charismatic background, and so emotion runs throughout this thing. And I, you know, you can read side-by-side comparisons, and his renderings are always, they always bend toward emotion or experience or the supernatural or things like that. And it's just very obvious. And so he's got an agenda, and so you just need to know that. And I would, I would you know, I'm not against paraphrases as long as you don't view them as Scripture. Uh, when I was growing up, the Living Bible was very popular. Uh, uh, later, it was the Message. Some of you have a Message mm-hmm. uh, Bible. Neither of those are Bible translations. I would not memorize from those. I would not use those to build your doctrine on. However, but sometimes, devotionals, yeah, reading, you sometimes know, people like, use hey, them I mean, like a devotion understand. or yeah. study guide. Yeah. Okay, fine. Right. I would not use the Passion Translation as a study guide. So here, if, you're, if you go to church here and I'm your pastor, listen to your pastor, avoid the Passion tra- Translation. Right. That's, my, that's my word to you. Uh, the, that's, my, that's my shepherd's warning. Because of the bent that's because of the steered bent. it toward the teaching of it yeah. and, and infusing just like that. Well, let, let, let me give you a quote from the website. Okay. Okay. Um, this is regarding the translation process that they use for the Passion Translation. The meaning of a passage took priority over the form of the original words. Uh Uh-uh. Sometimes in order to communicate the correct intended meaning, words needed to be changed. Well, how do you know the meaning if you're changing the words? Because the words give you the meaning. So we believe in verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture, meaning it's the very words of Scripture that are inspired, not the thoughts, not the meanings. I don't know how you divine the meaning. The only way he could say that is if he thinks that he's got a special word from the Lord in order to know it. So this is, this is me having the authority to decipher what Scripture is. That's kind of the, the bent that this comes from. So, Gotcha. All that's right. a warning. Yeah, yeah. so uh, <clears throat> that's good. And, and along those uh, same lines, you know, when it comes to Bible translations, and there was, you know, there's one later on, maybe we'll just, we'll just jump to that. The, the current New Testament, uh, you know, the coming together, the pieces, how did it come to be? Oh. Um, and how do we know it's complete and accurate? You know, yeah. to, know, to know that my scripture that I hold is accurate and complete. And then other denominations include other books. And Martin Luther wanted to exclude, like the book of James, calling it an epistle of straw. So how, how do <laughs> we... a lot to yeah, address. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. in this question, but it kind of ties yeah. into... You know, knowing my Bible, Maybe New you Testament. And- wondered that. We kind of talked about that on Wednesday nights in the past. How do I know that the books in my Bible belong there? And how do I know that there aren't other books out there somewhere that belong there that have been excluded? Yeah. I hear I, people have asked me about what about the lost books of the Bible? Yeah, that's one um, of the questions on here as well. Yep. Yeah, yeah. All right. So Old Testament, the canon of the Old Testament was never in question. There's never been debate about that. By Jesus' day... Nobody was fighting over what belonged in there. They just accepted what was in there. It was, it was, it was pretty rock solid. The rabbis all concurred. This is the canon. And there's a simple reason for that. If you were a prophet in the Old Testament era and you prophesied something and it didn't come to pass, they killed you. Yeah. yeah you that know. is one way to ensure accuracy. Yeah. We can You're get not, to that today and maybe take care of some we of We might, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if that would fly, but. So the big question is the New Testament. How do we know the New Testament? 
And so people, you know, maybe you've heard this, skeptics might say, well, you know, the Bible, there's no way to know if it's true because it's just been handed down generation after generation. Some things, so much has gotten lost. Well, the, the, what ensured that that would not happen is, that, is this thing called weekly meetings. This is why churches were instructed to gather consistently. When you gather consistently, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and you do what? You read the Scripture. It ensures integrity. And so they would copy these things down word for word. And so there's no document, historical document, that has as much integrity as the New Testament in its totality for that very reason. And nobody ever questions the authenticity of several other historical documents of antiquity, just yeah. the New Testament. And yeah. yet the New Testament has more validity, uh, more scrutiny poured over it. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at the Masoretic uh, text, which, mm -hmm. is, which is what, well, this is the Old Testament, uh, which should tell you that the New Testament is that much more accurate because it's newer. But the Masoretic text was the oldest manuscript that we had of the Old Testament until the 1940s. And then a Bedouin shepherd boy threw a rock in a cave, mm -hmm. broke some clay pots, found Dead a whole sea mess of scrolls. scrolls. Yeah. Those are the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. They're a thousand years older than the Masoretic text. And there's not a lick of difference. Yeah, they ma match them Minute. Yeah. I mean, yeah. scribal errors at the most and just a few. But for the most part, a thousand years apart, and they're identical. So God has uh, preserved his word. Yep. But when it comes to the New Testament, there's a process that people often cite, which is called canonization. Canonization. There's a series of councils. And so skeptics will say, well, they had these councils set up to determine what books were considered scripture. And they picked the books that went in the Bible. Have you ever heard that? And they left the ones out that they didn't like. But they, they put in the ones that they did like. Well, that's not exactly how it went. Canonization, which resulted in these councils over a period of centuries, became necessary not to know what Scripture was, but to put a seal on what had long been considered Scripture. You see, the early church had no problem knowing what Scripture was. The New Testament canon, they, they, they accepted it. And there was no debate over that. But what happened is centuries later, after the apostolic age, after all the apostles were dead... You had these yahoos emerging that would author books under the name of long-deceased saints, and they would pass them off as authentic. And they were, what they were is they were forgeries. Mm. Uh, they're called the pseudepigrapha. False writing is what that means, pseudepigrapha. And so uh, the church had to step in, and they, in, they induced these councils to canonize or codify the Scripture. So it wasn't picking books that would belong. There were books that were already recognized by the church. They had to codify it. They had to seal it so that nothing could be added to it, you see. Mm -hmm. But there was criteria. Here's some of the criteria uh, that they used in these councils for codifying the material of the New Testament. Number one, was the author an apostle or a direct associate of an apostle? So every book in your Bible was recognized as either being written by an apostle or someone uh, directly related to an apostle. Mm -hmm. uh, was the book accepted by the body of Christ at large? In other words, did the first century church read this book and circulate this book? Because that was a command that Paul gave them. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, is the book doctrinally consistent with the rest of Scripture? It can't be a contradiction. 
isn't in keeping with the accepted Bible in terms of its theology, its orthodoxy, all that stuff. And then fourth, does the book reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? Does it transform? Does it change? Is, is it just static or is there something about it that changes lives? And so that's what they used as criteria. But the main thing is these books were already accepted. The New Testament canon was well known uh, by the end of the first century. And so this is just codifying that. You know, and so there really isn't, it really isn't that complex of an issue. You, you, you mentioned Martin Luther. Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. I don't know if you know who Martin Luther was. Martin Luther is the, um, the figure that kicked off the Protestant Reformation. We all owe him a debt of gratitude. You know, he's the guy that nailed his 95 theses to the door of the cathedral at Wittenberg, Germany. And, you know, before Luther, it was all the Church of Rome. We'd all be Catholic if it weren't for Martin Luther. And, uh, you know, he, he, he stood on grace. He said, here I stand you know, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, to the glory of God alone. I'm justified by faith. Uh, so he, he had a trouble, he had, he had trouble with all things Judaistic. And James is about the most Jewish book in the entire New Testament because <laughs> it talks about works a lot. But if you read James, you understand he's not advocating works as salvation, which wouldn't be in keeping with the Old Testament anyway. But James is talking about Authentic faith. Authentic faith has works. Works is an authenticator of real saving faith. Uh, Luther just had trouble seeing that because he's coming out of Rome. You got to understand. You got to put yourself in his shoes. He's Mister Anti-Rome, Anti-Indulgences, Anti-Works, Anti-Whatever. And so when he sees James, you know, you got to cut him a little bit of slack on yeah. that. But Martin Luther's not inspired. He's not an apostle, and he didn't live in the first century, yeah. so he's not an authority on what belongs in yeah. the New he, Testament. He just has an opinion. Yeah, that's right. Cool. All right. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about uh, worship here in the church. Uh, so many churches, including ours, I thought this was a, a great uh, uh, question. Many churches, including ours, mm -hmm. sing songs from Bethel, Hillsong, Elevation, etc. In fact, tonight we did Phil Wickham. Uh -huh. We did Joel Houston, who wrote the second song from Hillsong. Mm -hmm. And then the last song we sang was from Chris Tomlin. Chris Tomlin, that's right. Yeah. So those, those three guys wrote those and from those camps and various yeah. camps, you know, some of them jump around and uh, yeah. based on that's the right. flavor or whatever. So sure. many churches, including ours, sing songs from Bethel, Hillsong, Elevation, et cetera, during worship yeah. services. What about the argument that singing songs from ministries with questionable teaching mm. could ultimately point people to those churches mm. where they in turn hear teaching that is not sound? Okay, that's a great question. Yeah. I deeply appreciate that question because it comes from a heart of concern. I'm a shepherd. I think all shepherds want to, you know, be cautious about such things. Um, I've thought a lot about this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you came from I, an area where it was, you were inundated in that. Well, some it's of true. Those. Two things. First yeah. of all, I was a worship pastor for years. Well, true, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I used all kinds of material. But it always, always, it was very important to me, the content mm -hmm. that we sang. I mean, you want to think about, is this singable? Will, can people relate to this song? Can they, are they going to be able to hit these notes? You know, yeah. mm -hmm. will, they, will they engage with this song? Mm -hmm. There's that kind of thing. But you're, you're looking at the doctrine. You're looking at the theology. Does this song lift up Christ? Does it, is this song accurate, biblically? That was important to me as a worship leader. Now, I did songs from Bethel as a worship leader, okay? Um, we lived out in California. I was well aware 
uh, we were not that far from Reading where Bethel Ministries is. And I'm just going to use Bethel as an example because uh, I think that's the most obvious one. There's some teaching in that ministry that I vehemently disagree with. It shouldn't come as any surprise. If you've listened to me teach, you'll know that their pastor, Bill Johnson, and I are on different ends of the spectrum in some areas. Um, you know, and I don't need to get into all of those teachings. But the music that I chose to do that came out of that ministry or that was popularized by that ministry, which is some of the songs that we do here, those particular songs are theologically solid and sound, okay? And so I, my philosophy is you take each song on its merits. I am not of the baby with the bathwater mentality. Mm -hmm. I am not one who says we ought to practice spiritual McCarthyism where there's guilt by association. Mm -hmm. What you have to understand about music publishing and songwriting is that the person that writes the song is not necessarily the head of a ministry in which that song was made popular. Mm -hmm. And so within a given ministry, you're going to have some people who, uh, who don't agree with all the teachings in that ministry, but they happen to have written a song that that ministry used. Mm -hmm. You're going to have people that are completely outside that ministry that they've borrowed that song from them and they've put it on one of their own recordings. But that song is also used in the recordings of other ministries. And so that's just how this works. Uh, and so I believe that the most sound thing for us to do is to take doctrine and theology very, very seriously. And we look at it and we judge each song on its merits. Uh, Daniel and I have had conversations. This is very important to Daniel. Yeah. Um, if he misses something, I, listen, I listen to songs that we do. Daniel and I had a conversation one time about a song. I said, hey, I like that song. Great song, great melody. For the most part, I like it, but there's just one line in the chorus. I'm not sure we can sing that. And I told him why. And he goes, you know what? You're right. We pulled it. Yeah. It's not in a rotation anymore. Yeah. So we're happy to do that mm -hmm. for the right reasons. But what I don't want to do is say, because this song made an appearance on an album that this other ministry that I disagree with in some things, mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to do that song. Uh, I, I'm just not comfortable with that philosophy. I'll tell you what. You might wonder, would the, what would the Apostle Paul do? Would he do a song that came out of a ministry that he knew was teaching some stuff that he didn't agree with? That's a great question. And you might say, no, he wouldn't. Except that in Acts 17, 27 to 28, and in Titus 1, verse 2, Paul quotes some pagan Greek poets, one of them named Epimenides, okay? whose work is rife with paganism, who is obviously not a worshiper of the true God. And yet Paul quotes him. Why does he do that? Because that quote contained truth. Mm -hmm. And he used that quote to make a valid point. This is Paul. Is Paul endorsing everything that that pagan poet had to say? No. No, he's not. But all truth is God's truth. Mm -hmm. All truth is God's truth. I've quoted a uh, man on a Wednesday night not long ago. I, th I think it was a Wednesday night. I quoted Mother Teresa. I am not in the habit of quoting Mother Teresa. I would disagree with 90% of you know, her, her doctrine, I'm sure. And yet, I quoted her. Why? Because that quote was right on the money. Mm -hmm. uh, Sunday, I quoted David Ben-Gurion, who was the first prime minister of Israel. Far as I know, he never received Christ as a savior. Maybe he did, but he was, he was Jewish. Did not receive, did not recognize Christ as Messiah. And yet... I, I used what he said to make a point 
in our study of the book of Genesis and the Abrahamic covenant. And so truth belongs to God. If a song magnifies Christ, there's a, there's a song made popular at Bethel that, that is a song all about eternal security. I don't even know that Bill Johnson believes in eternal security. But this song, I think, really uh, nails it. And we did it for years at our last church. And so I'm going to err on the side of truth. Uh, am I worried that people are going to find the sources of these songs, or at least what made them popular, and get duped and stuff like that? Well, folks, all I can tell you is we do our level best to teach the whole counsel of God. We're unafraid. I don't shy away from anything on this platform. Uh, we, are, we are serious about disciple-making here. We've got some D2 classes Mike Smith is going to launch here imminently. We're about making disciples, and we're going to teach the Word of God so that you study the genuine article here so that when you go out in the world and you see falsehood, you recognize it. We can't do more than that. We can't do better than that. So that's my answer on that. Okay. I think that succinct, you know, it's succinct in covering that yeah. and saying, hey, we're going to stand on the side of truth. And just like those, uh, the we're text all, where we compared it to, we're going yeah. to compare our songs with the text, yeah. you know, to make sure that we're giving the best. By the way, just so you know, uh, if you tell me any worship song that you like, we can find a ministry that does that song that you will disagree with on something. Any ministry. You, you, this is a never-ending thing. If you start doing the guilt by association game, uh, we'll have to write our own music, 100%. Yeah. yeah well, Which could be fun. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know Which, how much time I've got, but you know. You, you've done a little bit of that. We you've might, we in might, a little bit we might dabble that, in that. So, Daniel yeah. and I are talking. We're yeah. talking. Yeah, we got some talented people around here uh, yeah, we for sure. That's so true. We're, we're blessed. That's true. Um, so I know we're run, running quickly out of time. Um, I, let me, uh, some, some that are just kind of like, maybe you can hit on these really quick. Okay. Is standing for truth always the right thing? even if it sacrifices relationships? Is standing for truth always the right thing, even if it sacrifices relationships? Um, it sounds like there's a, there's a hurt at the heart of that question. Mm. There's a popular pastor that I really respect that a lot of uh, theologians regard as being very reliable and solid, and he's kind of all over social media right now because he's recently given some advice that people take issue with. Um, sometimes you have to stand for truth even if it hurts somebody that you're in relationship with. This guy was asked by a grandmother whose grandson is homosexual. And she said, I'm really struggling, Pastor so-and-so. Should I go to the wedding? It's a gay wedding. And to the shock of everyone, this guy said... Yes, I think you should go to preserve the relationship. Now, this guy's on record unequivocally saying homosexuality is wrong. Mm -hmm. Marriage is between a man and a woman. He, there's no doubt his view on marriage. But he advised that she go to preserve the relationship. Now, I still respect this man. I'm not canceling him. But I disagree with him on this recommendation. I would not advise going to that wedding. Now, that... that would that harm that relationship? I am sure that there will be tension in that relationship. But that is not the fault of the grandmother should she make that choice. That would be on the person. Because truth is to be spoken. We land on the side of truth. You cannot go wrong landing on the side of truth. Now, Scripture says to speak the truth in love 
from Ephesians, that always gets quoted. We need to be loving with the truth, uh, but often that's, that's conveyed in such a way as to uh, insinuate that we should not offend, that we should do our best not to offend. But the truth is offensive, and you're going to hurt feelings, and you're going to put a strain on relationship, not, not intentionally, but it's, it's the human heart, it's the sinful heart that reacts to truth. It doesn't like it. It's uncomfortable with it. And so there are going to be those situations where we have to take a stand. And I would say to compromise is not loving. It's not loving. So, you know, I think the the topic of a gay wedding is just a a natural thing to talk about. I cannot affirm that kind of a union. Scripture is very clear. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And so to attend, you you are affirming that, okay? And so... And so we have to make difficult decisions at times. And so that's my view, is that I would not counsel someone to do that, even though it's going to put a strain on that relationship, because to affirm wrongdoing, to affirm sin, is not a loving act. Our job is to confront. That doesn't mean you call them names. doesn't mean you cuss them out. Right. doesn't mean you hate them. Right. No, you do it because you love them. But it's, it's going to offend them. Right. And we've got to make our peace with that. You know, so the be- so maybe a better thing in that situation would be for the grandmother to talk to the person individually and say, "Hey, I love you. I'm always for you." Oh, I would definitely I, explain you know, the affirm why. the love for that individual person, That's but right. I cannot go to this because I stand for what the Word of God says. That is against what I believe the Word teaches and know the Word. That's teaches. right. And then to go would be to say that I'm supporting something that's antithetical that- to the Word of God. That yeah. would be the, a better way to handle that situation. Exactly. And I'm only using a gay wedding as, a, as, a, as an illustration. You could just as easily use a wedding between a Christian and a non-Christian. I've been approached to do weddings like that. I'm a pastor, and so people have asked me to do that. But they're unequally yoked. And so I would say, no, I, I can't do that wedding, nor can I attend that wedding, because I can't affirm that mm-hmm. union. Mm-hmm. Because as a believer, you're to marry a believer. All right? Uh, now, unbelievers get married all the time, but the, the institution of marriage is not given simply to Christians. It's given to unbelievers, but the definition does not change. The definition of marriage is one man, one woman. Mm-hmm. Not, not two men, not two women, not one man, two women, not one gal, three dudes. It's yeah. one man, one woman, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I know even here I've had people that wanted me to marry them that were already living together, yeah. you know, and... I just said, hey, I can't do that. If you decide to move apart and live apart, and then we counsel mm-hmm. and move to, toward that, then we can have that, mm-hmm. you know, wedding, and I'll support that because you did it God's way. Yeah. You know, some people just don't know and just yeah. don't understand. It's like they want a Christian wedding but don't want the Christian practices or product, process to move into that relationship. I've had the same situation. They've yeah. asked me, well, why don't, uh, shouldn't, we, shouldn't we be married? I go, yeah, you, I'll marry you right now. <laughs> I'll marry you right now. Yeah. But they don't want that. They want right. the big wedding, right? right? Right. In the meantime, you come apart, you honor God with your bodies, you honor one another. Right. If you claim to know Christ, right. let's, do let's it build way. it on the right foundation. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. That was, it kind of became a question about yeah, marriage. Yeah, it kind of it kind of went but, longer but at than the heart of to. it is truth and love. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, I don't know, man, we don't have much time at all. I know we need to let these you folks go. You guys don't have anywhere to be. <laughs> um let, let's, let's, uh, let's, oh man. All right, let me, let me ask. I'll, I'll try to get to two questions. I think you can go with this one pretty quick. 
will Jews who have not recognized Jesus as Savior go to heaven? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right. Which means, Jew or Gentile, if you don't receive Christ as Savior, you will go to hell. Okay? You will go to hell. Now, Jews in the Old Testament era, they didn't know the name of Christ. You know? Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all of that. But they were looking ahead. Right. They believed in the promise of God. They didn't know his name, but they believed he was coming. And they believed, and they were justified. Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him for righteousness. He, he, was, he was declared righteous. He's, gonna, he's, in, he's with the Lord now. We'll see him in heaven. Uh, you get to the cross. There was a rejection of Christ by Israel collectively. There were some individuals that believed. There are individual Jews today that believe. They're all going to heaven. Jews that do not believe, if they perish in their unbelief, they're like everyone else on earth. They have an eternity apart from Christ, and that, that's hell. Now, one day, I do believe this, when the Lord returns at the end of the tribulation, I believe all Israel will be saved. I believe Scripture teaches all Israel will be saved. And what that means is every Jew on earth that is living when he returns will look upon him, as Scripture says, will recognize him as the one whom they have pierced, and will mourn him as one mourns an only son, and I believe they will fall at his feet and they will worship him, and they will be saved. Every Jew in that day will be saved. But right now, unless you receive Christ, you will not go to heaven. I don't care what race you are. Cool. Fair enough. All right, last one. We'll, we'll go out on a light one. Do people have personal guardian angels? <laughs> That's a good one. Is my name It's a Willie nice G. thought. <laughs> Isn't it a nice thought? Let's see. You know, what's the, I'm looking for the verse that is used for that. There's only one. There is only one verse. Matthew 18.10. Here it is. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That's the only verse we've, ha we've got. Does that... Does that imply that we each have a guardian angel assigned to us that follows us from birth all the way through life? That's kind of a stretch. It's a nice thought. It really is. We've seen different movies, you know, TV shows and, and the like. But, um, it, you know, is, is it, I can't say that you don't. I can't say that you don't. But I'll tell you what. Uh, we know that angels are protectors in a general sense. They are protectors. They are messengers. They are ministers. Uh, malak in Hebrew, angelas, messenger in the Greek. Um, but I assure you, I assure you, you don't have just one angel looking after you. There's a whole multitude of heaven that is at the disposal of the Lord. Angels do the bidding of God. They do what God tells them to do. When Jacob was on that Judean arch in the wilderness after he had uh, swindled his brother out of his birthright and he's on the run from Esau, Esau wants him dead and he's out there and he's all alone and he's got his head on a hard rock and he's rethinking his actions. God opens up the shulam, the, 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 the ladder, the, the gateway, the thoroughfare to heaven and he sees the multitudes of the angelic realm coming and going mm -hmm. as if to say to Jacob, son, you're not alone. Yeah. The host of heaven is with you. And I, I really believe that, that uh, 
Angels are always looking upon God's face, and they do what he tells them to do. And so do I think there's one angel for each individual person? I think there's more than that. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's a greater thing than, than all of that. Uh, so, you know, we who belong to Christ, his angels are, are to minister to us. That's what they're there for. Mm -hmm. And I've got a great angel story that we don't have time for. Oh, yeah. But one day. Yeah, that I'll is share. a great story. I've heard that story. Yeah. And it, teaser. Yeah. Come back. It's a You'll teaser. Have to We've kept you guys long enough. Man, we didn't get through. Man, I don't know if we even got through half of the questions that we had. We'll just save them for we'll, next time. Yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to do it again for sure. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure there's more. These probably, some of these questions you answered may evoke more questions. And, you know. It, Maybe. You know, we, we can. Are, is this a waste of time right here? Or should we do these periodically? You enjoy this? All right. All right. All right. Good. 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 We'll keep it. Good job. Good job. Yeah. I got the easy part. You got the tough part. I just asked the questions. <laughs> you got to be ready for it. So, uh, do you want to pray for us to close us out I would and, love and to bless pray these for fine us. people on their midweek? Uh, yeah, yeah. Through the week. So, I'm excited about uh, this weekend diving back into Genesis, and um, it's going to be going to be a great journey. And then next next Wednesday, we are starting a new series. It's called Selah. Selah. Uh, you might recognize that word from the Psalms. Uh, we're going we're gonna to tear open that word, but it's going to be bigger than just a word. We're going to talk about five elements for encountering the voice of God. Five postures of the heart. And uh, we'll take several weeks to do this. It'll probably take us just past Easter, but I'm very excited about yeah, that. It should be fun. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this group of very hungry people. We thank you for their, um, just their intent gaze upon you. Uh, their longing for understanding for the Word of God. It is a privilege uh, to, to be here with them, to fellowship with them, uh, to teach, and, and to learn. And we just ask your blessing upon them this week as they go about their day. Remind them of the great truths of your Word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.